Hi, welcome to season three of Sacred Reading at Brandon High School. I'm so excited to be reading The Nickel Boys with everybody. And I am Miss Huff, and with me today is... Miss Wilson. And we are going to use Lectio Divina for the first time with this book. So that means that we're going to pull out a quote from the prologue to talk about. And we're going to talk about literally what's going on in this quote. Uh, allegorically, how is it like things that we have seen in society and in the world and in other books? And then personally, how is it like something that has happened to us? And then a call to action based on our conversation. So if you're not sure, this book is kind of fictionalized truth. And that's part of why I'm excited to read it is that much like The Hate You Give, it feels very much like something that can happen. And most of the events of the novel are things that did happen. All of the things surrounding the school are real. Uh, the character of Elwood is what is fictitious or made up. So I feel like this book is really going to make me think about my life, my community, what's going on here, because this all happened in North Florida. So the quote that we've picked out to start with is from the prologue. It's on chapter six and it's short. It says, nickel boys were cheaper than a dime a dance and you got more for your money or so they used to say. Now I picked that because I want to talk about it allegorically and personally, but first literally what's going on right here? literally yeah in the in the book in the story what what are we talking about well i mean nickel boys that's the name of the school that the author has given what he's using as the dozier school from tallahassee so nickel boys literally would be the the boys and young men who were sentenced to this school cheaper than a dime a dance I mean I guess I'm moving into allegorically though to define that because that's well maybe not allegorically but metaphorically you know they're talking about how cheap they are and how undervalued they are by society essentially yeah so I know that to define dime a dance does move kind of into the metaphorical realm but I also know they're talking here about how the state of Florida used to do things like have a dairy on the property and that sort of thing so that the state was making money off of these kids while they were incarcerated. As a, sort of like the story holes that a lot of students read at, in middle school or, uh -huh. in, or maybe ninth grade, I don't remember, but where they're digging for, they're sentenced to that area and then they're digging for the people who run the school to make the school... Mm -hmm. or the detention center, money off of basically free child labor. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why this hit me, the allegory to holes. And then also uh, you mentioned the whole dime a dance and defining that. It reminds me of A League of Their Own, the mm -hmm. baseball movie with Tom Hanks. Sorry if that's before your time, students. It's an awesome movie. It was set around World War II when girls played baseball because the boys went, because men went to war and they couldn't have Major League Baseball, so they had a woman's league. And there was a girl in the league 
who, when they were talking about shutting it down, she says to the guy in charge, she's like, I was a taxi dancer and it was, you know, 10 cents a dance and I'm not going back to that and I can't do those sweaty hands on me and all those men who are drooling over me. Like, I can't, I can't make my living that way taxi dancing anymore. So that dime a dance reminds me of that character and, and the pain in her voice when she talked about the life that she used to lead as that. So if we're saying that these kids are cheaper than that, that worries me that they were treating children as such commodities and of such low value. Well, and if you pair that with the time in which, well, this school in particular, or the Dozier School was open, but then in the novel itself, the Nickel School, and when this text is set during the Jim Crow era, Mm -hmm. and so you want to talk about what is happening in society with who is in charge, who Mm -hmm. most likely is in this school, and then that becomes both a race and a socioeconomic issue, and so... Who, who, do, who does society in the South tend to sentence during Jim Crow, but then who is working and reading through the prologue and the book jacket, who is abusing these children? And so mm-hmm. set in Jim Crow paired with the way that they're describing these really sets up for what is going to be coming in the book. Mm-hmm. I feel I don't know what is going to be coming in the book. I just said yes to the book. <laughs> um, It sounds like slavery. Yes, absolutely. Jim Crow era slavery, but so it's legal slavery. Right. Which is just even more, for me, even more problematic because society said, yes, that's okay now. We're going to do this legally. Right. And we're going to get behind it in the South. And we're going to fight to keep these very racist, uh, hurtful laws in place. Mm-hmm. And now we're going to take it out on children. Yes. And the fact that this school was closed in 2007, the book discusses that of Nickel, and that's true of Dozier as well, that we had an institution in Florida that traded on the backs of minority child labor for profit and abuse until 2007. And it only closed because they finally couldn't silence the reports of abuse. That, that is deeply disturbing. I want to live in a better community than that. So that hits the allegory, but also the personal that this is in the state of Florida. I know you were excited when you saw that USF was in there too, though. Um, okay, and so USF the, is... Right. A college. I'm, I'm, so one, I went to USF twice um, for six years total, but I'm the avid teacher. So mm-hmm. like the fact that the, in the first couple of pages, there was my university and our local university mentioned, um, like, thank you, uh, Colson Whitehead, for <laughs> doing that research. But, um, you know, they are seen as kind of, in the prologue, USF, um, archaeologist students are seen as kind of the hero of people who actually found the bones that Mm -hmm. backs up all of the stories that had been told Mm -hmm. because we're told in the novel that people had come out saying that this did happen but no one believed them until there was evidence right so it's like finding that evidence for your claim but unfortunately in this case the evidence was the bones of dead children 
Right. Um, so the fact that we didn't believe the boys who were sentenced here and made it out is just another layer of that institutionalized racism or institutionalized um, hegemony. Because mm-hmm. I did some research on the Dozier School. Not all the boys who went there were of um, black or Latino right. descent, but they were outcasted by society. Mm-hmm. They were seen as delinquents. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that was a way to silence them. And then interestingly, so USF kind of plays the hero. They not only discover the bodies, they go out and interview the boys who went through this, who are now grown men and the families and try to piece together all of the stories. But they are students doing this for internship and field credit. They're not being paid for it. So the state of Florida is again trading on the labor of those they do not pay to clean up this mess of the abuse of those that they the difference is though is that those students can use this on their resume and eventually gain from it and those students also are giving back to the community yes which you know we just learned had a lesson on serving others and how serving others can propel others forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so although I agree with you to an extent, they are also able to benefit from it at some point where the nickel boys Couldn't. had no benefit whatsoever. That's true. But yes, in, in any research grant, mm-hmm. you work under the professor and the professor's name goes on it. The professor's mm-hmm. name goes on the research, goes on the book, and interns can kind of just put it on their resume that they worked with that professor. So, however... So we still have all this inequity. Uh, Right. And I know that the professor has gone through many years of this, Mm -hmm. probably been an intern. I know that the state of Florida, this is a massive undertaking. It would be difficult to hire a company to do this kind of work. Uh, The students are doing it for the fact that they are learning lots from it. Uh, Certainly that is helpful there are some positives for everyone involved. I just worry about the system. This was institutionalized racism that hurt these students. And are we still, even though we're not talking about the institutionalized racism, we're still talking about an institution trading on the unrecognized labor of youth. So I I still worry there as well. And that's a whole other system in our universities. So... As I think about this quote and these kids and what's going on, I worry about where we are today and where my own community is today. And as I think about calls to action, you know, I hear a lot of people with diverse views in my community. And I like that my community has diversity. But I also worry about if we're being fair to everyone. And as a teacher at this school, um, the number of times I've heard kids talk about somebody who doesn't listen to them and, and their voice is not being heard, that worries me. Because what allowed this to continue for so long was that nobody listened to those boys. So what I want to do is listen. I want to stop and listen when kids are stressed out. You know, when we get students who are just kind of at the end of their rope for whatever reason and they're 
ready to throw a punch, they're upset, they're mad, they're anything like that. I think what I'm called to do is stop and try to find the story and try to hear their voice because I don't, I don't want the people around me to be silenced. I don't, I don't want anybody to be silenced. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm one of those teachers that throws themselves into the middle of the conflict (laughs) when it comes to students and am a constant listener. So I feel like my call to action is to continue to listen to adults in the educational community that don't understand how to do that or how they can help because um, my actions with students is already Mm -hmm. there Um, and I feel like my personal call to action is now helping adults who want to be a part of the solution figure out where they fit into the solution Mm -hmm. Um, because as an adult working with teenagers all day, every day, you have to be willing to stop and listen and figure out where they're coming from, where, where the teens are coming from. Um, because dealing with your emotions and understanding where your emotions are coming from is a learned behavior. And going through adolescent and puberty and high school and, and before that middle school <laughs> is part of the learning process. Mm-hmm. And paired with emotional stress or baggage that is started before you get to school, maybe mm-hmm. when you're at school, sometimes it's a text or a snap or an Instagram or a whatever app it is mm-hmm. that sets you off as a teenager, um, learning how to deal with that and like sit with it as opposed to reacting immediately is a learned behavior. And what I'm seeing now actually is more adults reacting instantaneously as well who need to learn to sit with who also need to relearn how to sit with it Um, the influx of the technology has literally changed the way our brains react Mm -hmm. and we have all become more instantaneous um, across the board and so I guess my my response to my call of action is working with adults who want to work more with students I like that and you know I'm also reading a professional book for being a better media specialist and it talks a lot about uh, like the the fake news phenomenon but specifically what hit me while you were talking is that it talks about how we're all motivated by the like the subscribe all of that and that we're all looking for the things that confirm our own bias and we tend to just kind of yell in the void often and I'm hoping that we can learn to figure out more of what's real. You know, these boys were talking for a long time and no one listened to them. So how do we dig in and find where the stories are real and when the voice needs to be heard versus just yelling about our own opinion and looking for likes? And that's something I'm also going to work on. Thank you for sitting and talking with me about this. Our next section, that was really just in the prologue, even though our section is also through chapter one. We'll talk about a quote from chapters two, three, or four next week, and that episode will be out on the 16th, and I hope you guys enjoy the book. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you.